This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So uh, you probably know the name Isaac Singer because the Singer name is still emblazoned on sewing machines available to all of us today. But there is so much more to his life story than that particular innovation. Uh, we mentioned when we did our episode several years ago on the patent wars around the sewing machine that his life story was sort of fascinating and, and merited its own episode. And he is finally getting it. But I will tell you up front... He's not really a heroic figure. <laughs> no. Uh, although he has like a hard scrabble start and you really want to root for him. He also was a big fan of kind of shady business dealings. He had a very violent temper. And there are a whole lot of women and children in this story. Singer was born on October 27th, 1811 in Pittstown, New York. His father, Adam Singer, was a German immigrant from Saxony. The name Singer is shortened from the family name Reisinger. It's a change Adam made after arriving in the United States. Adam and his wife, American-born Ruth Benson, had seven other children in, in addition to Isaac. And not long after Isaac was born, the family moved to the township of Granby in the relatively unpopulated Oswego County. And the family was not wealthy. Uh, Adam Singer had worked as a millwright, which was a job that required both technological skill and some know-how and ingenuity, but it was really an underpaid field prior to unionization. But then when they moved uh, away from Pittstown and to Granby, that wasn't really a job that was available. They were basically homesteaders by this point, trying to tame a land that really was largely still wilderness. As a side note, Oswego was in the midst of an area that was really considered a theater in the War of 1812, although the residents of that area seemed to have pretty much been onlookers rather than active participants. They were not really strongly affected by the war, even though it was part of the war theater. Yeah, it was happening around them, but it it seemed like it didn't... There were so few of them, for one thing, that it wasn't like... And the town was attacked, because there weren't really towns. It was very scattered. So 
Uh, Isaac, for his part, had only a very basic education at this point. The school where he learned was new. Um, it had been built by collecting money from families of the area. And there's some suggestion from his own recollections and in interviews that he gave later in his life that his father actually kept him away from school. And the family home was generally characterized as pretty tumultuous. Uh, Adam and Ruth did divorce in 1821. And as part of coverture laws of the time, a woman lost all claim to any property of their husbands if they petitioned for divorce. And children fell under a similar provision. They gave up rights to guardianship of their children. So Isaac never saw his mother again after this point. Adam remarried two years after the divorce, but Isaac never really bonded with his stepmother. So just 12 years old, he left home. He struck out for Rochester. It is possible, though kind of unconfirmed, that he first stayed with an older brother once he got there. He sought out a school to attend, and he spent most of the next seven years trying to make up for his previous lack of education. Yeah, and that that is sort of a a really interesting aspect of his story. Like, he was not required to go to school at this point. That was a voluntary school attendance on his part, because he really did feel like he would have rather been going to school throughout his childhood. And when he was 19, Singer got a position as a machinist's apprentice. And this seemed like he was on track for a really stable career. This was actually considered sort of cutting-edge technology at the time. But this apprenticeship only lasted four months. Singer would later claim that in those four months, he had learned all that a normal apprentice would have learned in the customary seven years of study with a master. But an entirely different interest had grabbed the young man's attention, and that was acting. He started taking odd jobs with the Rochester Theater, doing everything from taking taking tickets to being a prop man, all the while waiting to finally be cast in a play. He did eventually earn some small parts and then the lead role in Shakespeare's Richard III. He would later tell reporters that he was, quote, one of the best Richards of his day. He was... Not very modest. Uh, (laughs) And also, the reviewers did not agree with him. No. Uh, And around this same time, he met a young woman named Catherine Maria Haley. And Singer, uh, who was 19 still at this point, married her in December of 1830. And he had the first of many children just a few years later. But Singer was often gone. He would travel to other towns for theater jobs, uh, which he held in addition to a day job that he had at a dry goods store in the town of Port Gibson where they lived. But he was pretty half-hearted about his uh, dedication to that regular job. In 1836, Isaac, Catherine, and the baby moved to New York City. At the time, rumors were already swirling in Port Gibson that Singer had come to know a great many of the ladies there quite intimately. This is the kind of rumor that will crop up over and over in today's episode. Uh, In New York, Isaac took some odd jobs to make ends meet. And there were, once again, almost immediately, rumors of his proclivity to be unfaithful to his wife. But at this point, he was more concerned with pursuing his acting career than he was with his reputation. He joined a group called the Baltimore Strolling Players in 1836, once again taking any jobs that he could until he could break into acting roles with them. It was while performing with the Strolling Players in Baltimore that Isaac met 18-year-old Mary Ann Sponsler. And it wasn't long before Singer proposed to Sponsler. And in autumn of 1836, he moved her to New York City. 
Imagine her surprise when she discovered a wife and child in the mix. Uh, however, Singer was a very smooth talker. He was apparently very charming with the ladies. And he convinced his young love that his marriage was all but over and that they should live as husband and wife while he worked out his divorce so that they could then be legally married. In the meantime, Isaac and his actual wife, Catherine, had another child, although Isaac would continue his relationship with Marianne Sponsler for the next 24 years. She was patient, and he was apparently very, very charming and convincing. And they had 10 children together over that 24 years. Unlike Sponsler, though, Catherine did not stick around. She took her two kids and moved in with her parents. Their divorce didn't actually happen for more than two decades, though. And though he claimed to adore Sponsler, uh, Singer was not really around for her either, even as she was bearing many, many children. Uh, he was once again traveling to find work, sometimes at this point as a day laborer. And in 1839, at the age of 28, he invented a rock drilling machine. This ended up sort of designed for government use, and he filed a patent on it. And he sold the rights to that patent for $2,000, which was a substantial amount of money at the time. Seems like he used that money to start a theater troupe called the Merit Players, and they went on a national tour. Marianne and their first son joined him on the road, and the family and the rest of the troops spent 1839 to 1844 mostly in a wagon while they went from town to town. Marianne and Isaac had three more children during this period of constant travel. That sounds so miserable to me, but uh, what do I know? Singer, who performed under the name Isaac Merritt during this time, finally ran out of money, and he had to shutter his theater enterprise in 1844. Out of money and done with acting after trying and failing to earn a living at it for 14 years at this point, Singer instead picked up right where he left off career-wise before his stint on the stage, and he once again turned to machine work. We will talk about his return to working with machines in just a moment, but first we're going to pause for a brief word from Sponsor. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. 
Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Singer set up a shop in Pittsburgh in 1846 that made wood-type letters and raised sign letters. And a few years later in 1849, he patented his second invention, and that was a wood and metal carving machine. So this basically could make printing-type for uh, in lettered blocks. And he decided to move to New York City once again, this time with the intent to set up shop as a manufacturer, and he established a factory there to mass-produce these carving devices. His family suffered while he followed this dream. At this point, there were six children, not enough money to cover expenses and anything but the most bare way. And he persevered, though. He did manage to set up a machine shop, but this little factory was really short-lived. A boiler explosion destroyed the entire business, and 63 people died when that happened. While Singer himself survived because he was out at the time of the explosion, he was destitute. He eventually convinced George B. Zeber, who was a publisher and bookseller, to invest in his carving machine so he could build another prototype to replace the one that had been destroyed in the explosion. And just in the children tally, I feel like I should mention that those six children were the ones he had with Mary Ann. Catherine still had the other two children elsewhere. She was living, I believe, with her family at the time. Uh, and Singer had to move his shop to Boston as part of his agreement with Zeber, which he did, although his family stayed behind. And in point of fact, it was actually both families staying behind in New York City uh, because by random happenstance, his wife, Catherine, moved into the city and ended up just a few blocks away from his home with Mary Ann just to keep everything super awkward. While nobody in the publishing industry seemed really interested in Singer's carving machine, Singer and his partner were interested in something new that they saw in the shop they had rented, and that was sewing machines. Yeah, they had rented a little space in this shop uh, where they could kind of show off their piece and have people come and visit and see it. And also in this shop were lots of sewing machines. So since his business was non-existent, Isaac started examining the various sewing machines that came into the shop, which was owned by a man named Orson C. Phelps. And as you may recall from our episode from several years ago about the invention of the sewing machine, they were still very, very new at the time. And there was not one basic approach to how they worked, but several. So there were multiple different designs. Because numerous different entrepreneurs were vying to establish themselves as the manufacturer of the best sewing machine. There's some discrepancy in the accounts of Singer and Phelps as to exactly how the situation sparked Singer's work on a new version of the sewing machine. Phelps claimed to have challenged Singer to come up with a design since he was quick to point out what was faulty in all the models that he saw. But Singer was initially not interested and pretty reluctant. 
Singer, of course, left all that out when talking about his invention later. Yeah, he definitely describes it much more as being really inspired to fix the the problems of others. Uh, But in the end, Singer, Zeber, and Phelps did enter into a partnership in which Phelps offered workspace. Zeber contributed financially, although he was really quite strapped at this point, having put a lot of money into this carving machine that they were working on. Uh, and then Singer handled the design in the building. And it was less than two weeks, only 11 days from when he had the idea and figured out his design to when he had a first model built. And so for clarity, sometimes when you read this, it makes it sound like he just went off by himself and toiled like a madman in a, a small room alone. But he was not doing this toiling solo. He had men from Phelps's machine shop at his disposal, And he conducted the whole business with equal parts of foul temper and charm as he got all of these men working on things. He apparently was a bit moody, and sometimes he would yell at the workmen, and sometimes he would sing to them. Singer's machine made use of many of the technologies that other inventors had already come up with. It could stitch continuously on a free arm, and it could stitch curves. He added a thread control mechanism and moved the needle into vertical positions. Singer's machine included a presser foot, which offered greater control of the fabric as it passed through the needle's stitching mechanism, and it could sew at a blazing 900 stitches a minute. And for context of how amazing this is, you have to remember that this was a time when sewing was an essential skill for just about every woman who kept a house, and sewing was extremely time-consuming. She had to do all of the hand stitching that maintained her family's wardrobe, and that took up a significant chunk of her life normally. Singer went back to New York to apply for the patent on the machine, as well as for the birth of yet another child with Marianne. Isaac allegedly showed the midwife and the nurse who were on hand this exceptional machine that he had designed for sewing, even while Marianne was in labor to to deliver their child. Unfortunately, the new baby only survived for a few days. Uh, he also kept from his partners the fact that while he was in New York filing the patent for this trip, he only put his name on the paperwork. What a jerk. Pretty much. Isaac Singer and his partners immediately started advertising and marketing the sewing machine, and Singer called on his experience in the theater to do so. He would stage demonstrations at fairs and in stores, and he would sing a melodic version of the poem, The Song of the Shirt by Thomas Hood, throughout these demonstrations to try to help draw in crowds. And this machine worked, and it worked really well. Previous versions of the sewing machine had been persnickety and prone to breaking down, but the Singer machine was consistent and sturdy. Yeah, I will give him that for sure. The reputation <laughs> that continued to follow. I mean, I, I, have, I haven't bought a sewing machine in a, in a long time, but I know when I was learning on my mother's Singer, that was still the reputation they had. Yeah, they, uh, we'll talk about it a little at the end. They had a little dip in the like 80s and 90s, but then they've kind of bounced back. And again, I mean, you have to give him credit. He really did sort of smooth out the problems that most machines had. And that song of the shirt, if you've never heard it, is kind of about a person toiling and, and, you know, needing to take time to work on things. So, uh, while we credit him with smoothing out a lot of problems there in terms of the engineering of the sewing machine, as you know, if you listen to our episode on the sewing machine and its invention, you know that many of those previously existing technologies that Singer was using had been created or significantly modified by a man named Elias Howe. And when Howe got wind of Singer's machine, which happened when he saw one of Singer's older sons demonstrating it, 
he immediately claimed patent infringement. Howe first demanded a royalty payment of $2,000, but Singer, who was not the least bit shy about being aggressive in business, responded with physical threats. It's basically kicked off a long and contentious relationship for the two men, and we won't rehash the entire thing since we talked about it in detail in that previous episode, but here are some highlights. As Howe, who had pursued legal action against several other inventors who he claimed were also using his sewing machine designs, started to have some success in those legal efforts, Singer, worried that it might work against him, went on the offensive. So uh, he tried to discredit Howe's position as inventor of many of the items that he claimed patent rights to. And he also started a smear campaign against Howe in the press, with which Howe fought with a libel suit. There was eventually a patent trial, and Howe was ultimately the winner in that legal battle. Throughout all of this legal wrangling, Singer was producing sewing machines and refining his design. He partnered with another man, Edward Clark, in the meantime. In 1855, the Singer sewing machine won a first-place medallion at the Paris World's Fair after Clark submitted it to the exposition. And the ire and the legal wrangling around the sewing machine and who had invented what did eventually die down. As part of that, in 1856, the Sewing Machine Trust, which was a combination patent held by Howe, Singer, and a few additional inventors who all had skin in the sewing machine game, was formed. And this rights agreement allowed all of the various players to benefit from the manufacture of the machine that all of them had really contributed to developing. The year after the Sewing Machine Trust in 1857, Singer and Clark formed I Am Singer and Company. And this was a really momentous step in the shift of sewing machines from industrial tools to home goods. Clark and Singer very smartly started mass manufacturing sewing machine parts in New York. And in doing so, they made it possible to produce machines at a significantly reduced cost. And this meant that people could buy machines for home use for just $100. And they did. The Singer sewing machine was so successful that the company opened three more New York manufacturing facilities just one year later. Additionally, Singer, who was guided by the astute business acumen of Edward Clark, set up rent-to-own payment plans where customers could pay a monthly rate for their new machine, eventually paying more than they would have if they had just bought it outright, but owning it at the end of the rental agreement and being able to use it in the meantime. Singer also started hiring women to demonstrate the machines instead of the male members of his team to prove that even the finest of ladies could handle the machinery that he built. And to really make sure his sewing machine became a standard in the homes of all respectable ladies, he offered machines at discounted prices to the wives of pastors and ministers of all denominations. So while Howe gets the credit for inventing the sewing machine most of the time, as we've talked about in that old episode, it's a lot more complicated than that. Singer is really the man who brought it into the home market. In 1860, so just a few years after the partnership with Clark, I Am Singer and Company was the largest manufacturer of sewing machines in the world. And this the massive sales numbers that they were able to start making outside of the U.S. actually positioned the company really well to weather the storm of the U.S. Civil War intact. Part of that success, particularly the personal wealth that Isaac Singer enjoyed, was the result of aggressive and often ruthless business practices on the entrepreneur's part. 
When he had first started his company, you'll recall, he had gained financial backing and shop access from uh, George B. Zeber and Orson C. Phelps. But he had absolutely no sentimentality about that relationship uh, in terms of Isaac Singer, he really didn't care for those men particularly, apparently. Uh, he bullied Phelps out of the company really early on. And then he pressured Zeber to sell his interest to him when Zeber was told he was quite ill and believed that he was at the end of his life. Incidentally, Zeber was not either of those things. But while he was pondering his seemingly imminent death, Singer told him that he should wrap up his business affairs, take a buyout before he passed, so that would spare his grieving family the fiscal troubles that they would need to wrap up once he was gone. Singer got his buyout, but as it turned out, it had all been an elaborate trick on his part. I feel like we're saying this over and over, but what a jerk. I just, what a jerk. Uh, we are now going to speak a little bit more about Isaac's later life and how his philandering eventually caught up to him. We will say what a jerk several more times, I have no doubt. But first, we are going to pause and have a break and hear from one of our sponsors. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Join us as we hear from the world's greatest athletes, coaches, and trainers as they discuss how they utilize training, competition, recovery, and the latest innovations in fitness to improve their performance and push through their personal, physical, and mental challenges. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. You can practice every day because you're working on things. Like you might slow something down or exaggerate another thing, but when you're competing, you're going as hard as you can for even that short amount of time. It's a lot of intensity and it's a lot of physical power. It's a lot of mental power. I think that's why it's so draining and to shift gears after every event. Like, oh, I just ran the hurdles. Now I have to think about high jump. How do I get as high up in the air as I can after I just tried to run as fast as I can? Giving that much intensity in such contrasting events can, can be really be difficult. Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. We've had some podcasts on the show before about people who were really kind of ruthless in their business world and then also hoarded the profits. That was not Isaac Singer at all. He was flamboyant in his spending. He moved Marianne and their children from their humble home on the Lower East Side to a progressively nicer lodging as his success grew. And eventually they were on Fifth Avenue, which was home to only the wealthiest families. His neighbors there never really accepted Isaac and Marianne, though they certainly partook in the huge parties that the duo hosted. Uh, the singers were nouveau riche and utterly gauche in their taste. For example, while he was in New York, Singer's main means of transport was this black and bright yellow carriage that he had designed and had custom built. This carriage was large. It needed at least six horses to pull it, so Isaac was contributing to the manure problem we discussed recently. Sometimes he had more than that on the team. He would have he would have live musicians ride along with him so he could always have music, and as many as 31 passengers could ride in this vehicle, which also had an onboard bathroom and sleeper beds. And he needed all those seats for his large 
and seemingly ever-growing family. As his fortune grew, he made an effort to reconnect with his eldest son from his first marriage. Uh, and in the early 1850s, when things were starting to really spark for him in the business world, he also started two more long-term affairs with women named Mary McGonigal and Mary Eastwood Walters, both of whom lived in New York City. So this means that he still had his estranged wife, Catherine, because we said before, was a while before their divorce uh, became final, as well as Marianne and these two new Marys. Of course, there were also more children with McGonagall and Walters. And in 1860, he finally did divorce Catherine, although he made her confess to adultery before he would give her her settlement payout of $10,000. Yeah, and she had um, taken up residence, is my understanding, with another man at that point. But she hadn't lived with him for a long time. And he had been living with several other people. Uh, and so it would seem that now he could fulfill his promise that he would marry Marianne once his divorce was settled 24 years after they first talked about it. She had been patiently waiting for a quarter of a century. But then he told her that he did not want her to have power over him. So he was not going to enter into a legal marriage. This is, again, a point where we say, what a jerk. Sorry. Not long after this, Marianne spotted Isaac riding in a carriage with Mary McGonagall, and she began ranting at the two of them. Singer later beat her for her outburst. It was, not surprisingly, given his temper in business, not the first or last time that he was violent with a woman. He was, however, arrested this time because Marianne called the police. Singer retired in 1862, though his company, of course, kept going strong. In 1863, the company incorporated as the Singer Manufacturing Company. It had gained 22 more patents at that point, and it was planning to launch an overseas factory, which it did in Glasgow, Scotland, in 1867. When he retired, he moved to Europe. This is often characterized as flight from New York. as because the Big Apple had grown complicated and fraught for this ostentatious and philandering entrepreneur, he was often being hounded by the press because of allegation, allegations of domestic abuse. And additionally, all this press meant that all these women who had set up households with him knew that they were not unique in terms of being his partner. Yeah, he had basically led each of them to believe that they were living in a monogamous household and that he just traveled a lot. But really, he had multiple households throughout the city. Uh, Marianne Sponsler made a divorce case claim against Singer's estate. She claimed that they basically had a common law marriage. And while she was awarded a large alimony payout of $8,000 uh, annually, Singer renegotiated through his attorneys to a much lower rate of $50 per week. Marianne ended up disgraced, however, and stripped of her alimony when it was revealed that she had married another man shortly after this settlement was reached. She was the one who ended up scandalized as an adulterer, despite Singer's constant infidelities to multiple women at once. The common law marriage was dissolved. She was left with nothing. He had been the man of the house in three different houses at the same time, and he had 18 children. And in a deeply seedy move, Mary McGonagall's younger sister, Kate, traveled to Europe with him as his companion when he fled, although the two of them didn't stay together long, and where she went from there is not clear. 
1863, while he returned on a visit to New York to settle his divorce from Sponsler and dissolve his partnership with Clark as part of the incorporation of the company, Singer married his second wife, who was already very, very pregnant. Wife number two was a woman named Isabel Eugenie Boyce Somerville. She was recently divorced herself and was just a young woman in her 20s. And she was not any of the other women we have already referenced. No, he was a new one. She was a new one. Yep. So after he married for the second time, Isaac and his bride lived in the Fifth Avenue home. During this time, his first wife, his first wife, Catherine, attempted to renegotiate the terms of their settlement again. This resulted in a rift between Isaac and the oldest son that he had had with Catherine, as he had asked the young man to testify in court against his mother, threatening, quote, take your choice, your mother with poverty or me with riches. He also threatened to kill his son, William, when William refused to testify. The court case was eventually dropped. Yeah, we don't really know like how that played out and how the case went away, but uh, William never had to testify one way or the other, but the... The relationship was pretty damaged. Uh, in 1864, Singer and Isabel built a new home called the Castle in Yonkers. And there they threw a lavish housewarming party, but very few people attended. They still had the problem that people just thought they were nouveau riche and they weren't really all that respectable. During the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, and after only a short time living at the castle, the Singers moved to Paris in 1866. As the Franco-Prussian War broke out in 1870, Isaac and the family moved to England, where they settled permanently. He had a massive French Renaissance-style home built built in South Devon called the Wigwam. And in it, he included a private theater, along with every other lavish room imaginable, where he and the family would put on plays. And one of the interesting things about uh, Isaac Singer's many romantic partners and all of those children, he ended up with 24 documented by the time it was all done because he and Isabel had several. Uh, while he could not stay true to one woman, he really was pretty devoted to his kids, with the exception of uh, his eldest son, William, after that failed bribery attempt for perjury that did not work out. And his home in England was built in grand scale so that all of the rest of his known children could live there with him. At the wigwam, it seemed like Singer found a sort of peace that had eluded him throughout his life up to that point. He threw three spectacular parties there every year on the 4th of July, Christmas Day, and his birthday. He even played Father Christmas and gave out toys and food to less fortunate children in the area. And several of his kids ended up connected to rather notable Europeans. His son Paris, who was his son with Isabel, had a child with Isadora Duncan, uh, who is known as the mother, mother of modern dance. And if that name is ringing sort of a grisly bell, it's because, yes, she is the person you're thinking of that died in a rather horrific car accident when her long dramatic scarf, which was blowing in the wind, became entangled in the wheel and, re- and then rear axle of her vehicle. Isaac Singer died from heart disease on July 24th, 1875. He was 63 at the time, and his wealth, which was estimated at $18 million when he died, uh, just invited immediate squabbling from the many families he had started through the years. But he had carefully arranged his will so that the money was divided into 60 equal parts and distributed among his family members, some of them receiving multiple portions. Yeah, it was very, very clear that he had favorites. Like some kids would get 
you know, four or five portions and others would get only a couple. Uh, and while William, with whom he had fallen, had that huge falling out, received only the relatively tiny sum of $500. And William's sister Lillian, who was also Catherine's child, only got 1000 uh, An interesting thing happened here, which is that the other illegitimate singer children, who had fared much better in the will, each gave up a portion of their inheritance to supplement those amounts that William and Lillian received. And so uh, then of his many wives and uh, other paramours, only Isabel was recognized in the will with any sort of monetary payout. And while the Singer Company and its manufacture of sewing machines did go through some bumpy times over the years, as we alluded to earlier, it still remains a recognized and pretty respectable name in the home sewing market. Yeah, uh, you know, more than 200 years after he was born, his company keeps on trucking. I have a singer that is from 1911 that has been in my husband's family since it came off the manufacturing line mm-hmm. i need to replace one of the belt or yeah. one belt on them there are That's the one thing they'll go forever but they do need some maintenance yeah there are some similarly old singers in my family and then the one that i learned to sew on was my mother's and that one was probably from uh like the at the at the latest early 70s because she would have bought it before i was born um, and then I, I used that as my sewing machine for a while, and then we sort of traded sewing machines uh, after a while. So I, I'm pretty sure that one is still in their home and still working. Probably. That was when they, uh, normally the home sewing market, even though they were the modernized machines, not the old, you know, cast iron-based treadles, mm-hmm. uh, they still had metal gears, mm-hmm. whereas there was a shift later to plastic gears, so they did not last quite as long. And if you sewed a whole lot over the course of several days, I discovered the hard way you could fuse those gears together. Oh, whoops. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, his legacy still remains. And it's it always kind of cracks me up when you see like um, him listed as like a great American entrepreneur. And I'm like, well, he did some cool stuff, but we got to take a look at what was really going on in his life because he was maybe not the best dude. Uh Highs and lows with that one. We have a number of, of like, inventors of things with really checkered pasts in our archive. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I also want to, you know, I should give him some extra guilt on that manure crisis thing, because while we talked about the one huge carriage, he had many, many carriages, and he liked to race them up and down Fifth Avenue to show off. Uh, so, so he was contributing more than just that six to nine horse team that carried the big, crazy size one. Oh, Isaac Singer. You're a mess. Do you also have some <laughs> listener mail? I do. Uh, I have a, a couple of pieces. I'm going to try to be quick because I know this episode ran really long. The first is from our listener, Abby, and she says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I'm a longtime listener and was so excited to hear you did a podcast on the Achaemenid Empire because I first started listening to Stuff You Missed in History Class in 2009 while living in the lands of the ancient Achaemenids. I was blessed to serve as a Peace Corps volunteer in Turkmenistan from 2008 to 20." to 2010, and I squealed with excitement when I heard you all mention Turkmenistan on the podcast, much like I do whenever I hear that name. Your podcast holds a truly special place in my heart because of my time in Turkmenistan, which was equally one of the most fulfilling and lonely periods of my life, and it provided me with solace. 
I served teaching English as a foreign language as a volunteer in a village about 20 miles outside of the capital city. My village, uh, which I am not going to try to pronounce, but it was named after a famous uh, Turkmen poet. Uh, and she worked at the local school teaching English to fourth to eighth grade students. And she was the first American volunteer to live in that village and was therefore the first native English speaker that many of those villagers had ever seen. So she needed to rely on her knowledge of the Turkmen language to get by every day. She says, while I love teaching and I truly appreciated my experiences in Turkmenistan, life could become very lonely when your communication is limited. I was never very good at languages. I literally crave for conversation and media in English. Another Peace Corps volunteer turned me on to your podcast, and it became a great joy in my life when English media was difficult to come by. When I was lonely or having a tough time, and I have rewatched all my episodes of The Office or Gilmore Girls, your podcast really helped me get by because there was so much content that I could listen to, and it actually felt like my brain was stimulated. While I realize it was your show's predecessors who got me through some tough points in my personal Peace Corps experience, I am confident that you ladies are providing solace for Peace Corps volunteers around the world. And for that, I thank you. Uh, and she sent us some beautiful pictures from Turkmenistan. And uh, I just want to say thank you to her as well. I, One of my best friends growing up and her husband both served in the Peace Corps. I so appreciate the work that those people do. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Abby. I also wanted to say a quick congratulations to uh, Bethany and her husband, Patrick, who sent us a birth announcement of their baby Lucy. Uh, and they, uh, Bethany mentions that she listened to the podcast a lot when she was on bed rest during her pregnancy and that, uh, <laughs> she started the podcast at one point when, uh, Lucy was having some issues staying calm and she started the podcast for herself, but it actually stopped the baby crying immediately. Aww. I'm shocked that I would have this effect on babies since I'm scared of them and they can smell fear, but I'm glad it helped in this case. So congratulations, Bethany and Patrick, on your your new little one. And I hope you guys are all doing great. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also connect with us at Facebook.com slash History. On Twitter at Mist in History, at Pinterest.com slash Mist in History, at MistInHistory.tumblr.com, and on Instagram at Mist in History. If you want to learn a little bit more about a subject related to today's episode, you can go to HowStuffWorks.com, type in the word sewing machine in the search bar, and you will get an article called How Sewing Machines Work. So if you want to really see how Isaac Singer's work culminated in one pretty standardized way of sewing machines being put together, you will learn it all there. If you want to visit us online, you can do that at mistinhistory.com, where we have every episode of the show ever, including the ones by those predecessors that helped Abby get through her Peace Corps time, uh, as well as show notes for any of the newer episodes that Tracy and I have been working on together since we've been here. So there are also some other goodies on there. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting? We're just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. 
I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.